Democrats in the legislature have swooped in like bats believing they have some sort of mandate for radical change. I submit they're all bats. Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast presented by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, where Drew Klein is the president. And uh, Drew, uh, today's podcast is focused on one topic, the truly shocking news of the passing of newly elected Speaker of the House, Dick Hinch, here in New Hampshire. It's one of those stories that when was the last time you were shocked by the news? No, I I mean, when you told me, I almost fell down. It was um, it's a sad day. Also with us uh, is uh, Chris Maidment, who covers the legislature for New Hampshire Journal. And when you called me with the news, Chris, I, I was just stunned. I mean, I was just talking to Speaker Inch the other day. I mean, he's a vibrant kind of guy. And then just out of nowhere, boom. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I got a call uh, shortly before I called you. I, I needed a little time to digest the news myself because it was, as you say, that shocking. Uh, you know, last week we just watched him uh, be elected to to the speakership, and and it was a it was a very emotional day for him. Uh, he was deeply honored to be elected to that position by you know the the House of Representatives, which is a group of his peers, where he's worked for uh, twelve years. He was going into his thirteenth year as a state representative from Merrimack. He's been a longtime public servant in Merrimack. Uh, and like you said, a vibrant guy. Every time you talk to him, he was upbeat. He was jovial. He was happy. Uh, everybody was his friend. He, he, you know, he, that's the way he always addressed a conversation with me. He goes, how's it going, my friend? Uh, and, and it was, you know, it was really, uh, shocking. Like you said, to, to hear the news of, of his sudden passing, uh, so abruptly just a week after he got the, you know, one of the highest positions in the New Hampshire state government. And it was a position uh, that he clearly wanted when he was uh, talking about running. He talked about the how important it was to have a Speaker of the House who could make the House work, that there was a lot of responsibility that came with the job. In other words, it wasn't something for a kind of a flighty person or an ideologue, but someone who knew how to make state government work, Drew. And, and to be on the verge of having this job that he wanted and, and admired so much and then to be gone is just uh, just stunning. Well, I know I'm not alone in being one of the folks who follows New Hampshire politics who was really looking forward to Dick Hinch being speaker. And the reason is, as as Chris mentioned in his uh, acceptance speech, there were tones and echoes of Jefferson's first inaugural. He talked about being Democrats and Republicans, um, but being Granite Staters and being folks who could all come together and solve the state's problems. He said he would always have an open door and uh, everybody would have a seat at the table with him and he would listen. And that's one thing he was known for is listening and um, and really and actually listening, not just, you know, waiting right. for his turn to, turn to speak. And so there was this great sense that he was going to, um, like you said, try to make the the house work for everybody, make sure everybody was included. I think he took that very seriously. He didn't want to just, um, you know, be the Republican speaker. He wanted to be the speaker for everybody. And, um, and now that's gone. And I don't think anybody really knows if that, approach is going to 
you know, follow with whoever his successor is. And um, I just think it's a really lost opportunity in this past couple of years when we've had such great partisanship all around the country. Um, and we had a real chance here to to kind of bring the state together in a way that I thought would have been very constructive. And um, and that's not going to happen, at least the way Dick would have made it happen. And um, I think it's really sad. So uh, of, of not long ago... I gave Dick Hinch the nickname Rockstar. And I was calling him Rockstar. And it was so funny to watch people react because he's such an unassuming guy. Like when I, when I called him Rockstar, he was, he was a, little, a, bit, a bit put off by it. But I gave him the nickname Rockstar after that veto day session in 2019 when the Republicans went 23-1. and 1. I think that's, is that right, Chris? 23-1. and 1. And then they went 22-0 and 0 this year. And you could see it as it happened, the House minority, you know, they'd lost the majority in 2018 and the Democrats were pushing through all these uh, big ticket items like the paid family medical leave and, you know, the, the fighting on the budget and you know, demanding potential tax hikes in the budget. And they started winning these veto votes and winning and winning. And the because Hinch was somehow able to get these legislators to, number one, show up, you know, which is a big fight right there in a 400-member volunteer legislature. And then to vote as a group, they kind of learned the power of unity and the victory. And once they tasted victory, I, I had someone at the state house told me, he says, it was all over. And then they, they finally <laughs> got it. They got it. And that's what made Dick Hinch the rock star. And I just want to ask you, both of you, this. Imagine how different Chris Sununu might look today if he had lost those veto fights on things like paid leave or the uh, you know uh, uh, green energy bills, et cetera, what if he instead of gone twenty three one, he'd gone like thirteen and thirteen or whatever you know, and and, uh, and and lost a bunch of veto fights? I think his governorship could look. COVID might have changed everything anyway, but it could have looked very different if Hinch hadn't found a way to get his caucus behind their Republican governor. He does deserve some credit for the success of um, Sununu in the last couple of years, um, just being able to pull that that group together. And and that's, again, a testament to his leadership. I mean, one of the things about Dick Hinch was he was both a lover and, and a fighter. Like, he was, uh, I think, a lot of the conservatives in the House liked him because he would fight um, for conservative issues. And he, he would stand up and, and take it to the Democrats and not back down on things, while at the same time being civil and getting along with the Democrats. And I think that is a, a combination that used to be more common than it is today. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, going back to the uh, GOP state committee meeting uh, in January of 2019, yeah. right after Republicans had been washed out of the House, the Senate, uh, the executive council, they kept the governorship, but that was it. Uh, all the federal race races in 2018 were Democrat. And two months later, we go into the state committee meeting up in um, Meredith, I, I believe it was. And, and Dick Hinch, who, like you said, is, is kind of unassuming, uh, you know, very jovial, very positive. And he gets up at the at the rostrum and he gives this rousing speech where he says, you know, hell no 
uh, <laughs> at least two dozen times. You know, do we want an income tax? Hell no. And he, he the crowd was worked up. Uh, everybody's worked up. And, you know, that's the first time I saw that side of Dick Hinch, that fighter side that you mentioned, Drew, mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, I didn't know he had this in him. Uh, and that, <laughs> that was, of course, the, the famous speech where he dropped the line. The Democrats, they're all bat bleep crazy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that got, you know, rousing applause from from the, you know, the state committee membership of the of the GOP, of course. And that really set the tone for the biennium. And, you know, like you said, uh, getting the Liberty, the Liberty Caucus on board with the establishment GOP and the quote unquote rhinos that's thrown around way too much. Um, but Dick was able to bring everybody to the table and everybody had a voice and everybody uh, was included. And that's how the caucus was able to stay united for the two years, um, especially on those vetoes. Like you mentioned, when they went into veto day and they won, a lot of these guys were first term reps. They had, you know, they sat through these sessions where all of these Democrat policies were pushed through. And then on veto day, they they kind of uh, at least most of them felt like they got their revenge. Right. Mm-hmm. They got to see they got to show the Democrats what it felt like to lose. And that gave them that that motivation to keep going and keep fighting the fight. And, and that staved off uh, all of those policies that you mentioned, paid family medical leave, which they called an income tax over and over again for the point five percent paycheck withdrawal. Uh, but, that you know, and, and like you said, that's really a credit to Dick's uh, leadership and his ability to approach everything in this civil manner, mm-hmm. give everybody a voice. And Drew, I think he hit the nail on the head. He was always listening. He wasn't waiting for his turn to talk, like you said. I think that's exactly right. He would listen to anybody. Um, you know, when I was new to politics about three years ago, I started going to the uh, center-right meetings. And he came out of his way, came up to me, introduced himself, shook my hand, and he said, how are you, my friend? And I think, and you know, that sticks with me to this day because it's that smile. And it was right after his mm-hmm. uh, surgery. So he had his boot and his cane and, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. he was just so, so positive about everything. He, the guy, uh, you know, there's very few like him in the world and, and the world is, is at a loss without him. Yeah, there are very few people agree. like him in politics. And one of the little uh, ironies is that he lived on. Ichabod Drive in Manchester, I mean, in the Merrimack, and mm-hmm. and he was the polar opposite of Ichabod Crane, uh, <laughs> he, you know, who was skinny and uh, uh, and condescending to everybody and standoffish and aloof, and here Dick was, you know, large, round, and jovial, and cheerful, and happy, and a gentleman, and charming, and um, I, I don't know anybody who didn't like him. I, I knew that the label rock star was sticking and making its point when I started hearing from people very close to the governor going, yeah, you know, you know, uh, Governor Snoodle had a lot to do with that uh, veto sustaining, too. You know, I mean, uh, he, he worked really hard, too. You know, and that's that's, you know, when you're a success, everybody wants to jump in. And Dick Hinch certainly had some tremendous successes. Uh, Chris Maidment, thanks so much for joining us for uh, the podcast. Now get back to work. <laughs> you, you got it, Michael. It's a, <laughs> it's a sad day to be working, but yep. the work must go on. Thanks, Chris. So I wanted to ask you, Drew, from a policy standpoint, uh, what impacts do you think we'll see going forward from the passing and the way we're going to have to have the House organize itself uh, 
here with the with the loss of Dick Hinch? I I think it's really early to say um, because we don't know who necessarily is going to replace him. Um, but you know, so one of the things that Speaker Hinch was um, interested in was policy in general. Like you know, he was a a, a charming um, person, person, a people person, but um, he paid attention to policy and he was interested in it and he was interested in good ideas and you know he would introduce um, legislation and push it. So he, for example, had uh, sponsored or was sponsoring a um, an, a school choice bill, an education savings account bill this year. Um, with the speaker sponsoring it and backing it and leadership backing it, it was expected to go very far. Um, I, I don't know what the prospects for that are going to be now that he's gone. So, um, you know, there's going to be uh, the, the tax issue. Um, so there's a big debate. There's going to be a big debate on um, business tax cuts versus, uh, for example, uh, rooms and meals tax cuts. And uh, if you're going to trim taxes, how do you do it? And uh, do you do it for growth or do you do it just to rebate some money to people? Um, and that that was going to be a serious policy debate. And so that's going to shift um, without him here. There's going to be a lot of these policies that are going to not quite take the same form necessarily. But I think the, gen the GOP in general is uh, just speaking broadly, all kind of on the same page, but um, you know, Hinch could have shaped some of those policies in one direction or another, but to me, the bigger issue is he could pull the party together and get the votes. And so when you're talking about something like education savings accounts, um, you need every Republican to be there for that vote. Hinch could potentially do that. Another so, issue is supposed to be right to work, which is a contentious issue. Yeah, it, exactly. it doesn't go down the traditional Republican Democrat lines. There are people on both sides who might come together. And, you know, with Hinch's leadership, you might be able to build that coalition to push through a right to vote bill that could get through the Senate and get to Sununu's desk. And now without uh, Speaker Hinch, you just, you just wonder, you don't know. I mean, but to me, when you mentioned, you know, building the unity, I mean, that's what this is all about. I, you know, I, I, we got a lot of blowback at uh, NH Journal last week for a piece we wrote about how the Republicans mishandled the first week with Organization Day, et cetera, and the fights over the masks. And, you know, just it was not it was not a good look all the way around, keeping the fact that people had uh, been exposed to covid secret. And um, that shows you just how hard it is to manage a, a caucus in a 400 person body than a caucus of Republicans. Cause as you know, Drew, if you know, when you're not doing identity politics, which Democrats often do or basic coalition politics, when you're doing ideological politics, well, everyone has a different idea. And so Republicans love to fight and you're, you know, I'm, I'm you know, you're not truly conservative. You're not truly pro-business. You're not true. You know, so you have all these, uh, almost, uh, uh, fights about virtue signaling. Let me show you, you know, what kind of Republican I am. And right. so a lot tough. of that is identity. It's identity politics on, on a conservative exactly, side. Exactly. On an ideological side. Exactly right. And uh, so it was already going to be tough, even with Hinch, to keep this right. caucus of cats herded together. And now it's it's going to be tough. I, I uh, talked to Representative uh, Voss uh, just a few hours after the news about uh, the speaker and he, I asked him, what, so what happens now? And he said, we will elect a new speaker on January 6th 
and we mourn for an entire term. And he was talking about yeah. his personal feelings. But I, I don't want, yeah. I would not be surprised yeah. if Republicans as a whole in New Hampshire don't end up mourning based on how things play out in the House without Hinch's leadership. Yeah, and one of the things I think that made him so effective, as I mentioned in other sections of the podcast, is um, he came out of the conservative wing of the party. I always thought of, of him, you know, I, I encountered him early on as a backbencher, um, as somebody who was, you know, conservative sort of activist um, type. And so he came up through that and he had those credentials, and, but he also had this ability to be able to pull people together. And he really was genuinely interested in listening to other people and other points of view. And, um, and he would compromise on things that he felt like he could compromise on, and then he would be firm on others. Um, and, and that combination is, is fairly unusual. So I think that's what the caucus is going to miss is somebody who can pull the, you know, more rambunctious conservative <laughs> and libertarian factions, because uh, those are you know, sometimes two different factions, you know, mm -hmm. he could speak to those factions um, in their own language and bring them together with the moderates and the more traditional New England Republicans and and get stuff done. And um, I, I don't know who's going to be able to step up and and do that. That was quite a skill. Uh, I agree. And that's going to be uh, one of the many stories that we uh, will be covering at the New Hampshire Journal as this uh, House session and legislative session rolls out. And I know that you'll be talking about the policy implications at the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. Drew, where can people find your stuff and sign up for your broadsheet? No, broadside. Excuse mm -hmm. me. It's, it broad is a broad. Side, it should right. be a broadsheet. Uh, <laughs> the broadside. Uh, you can find us at Jay Bartlett two T's on the end.org and you will find all of our free market takes on uh, New Hampshire public policy right there. And you can go to the contact us page and sign up for our email newsletter, which comes out only once a week. We don't send you stuff every day. Like New Hampshire journal does. We're not that crazy. <laughs> and if you want the New Hampshire journal newsletter, just go to nhjournal.com and a little window pops up and it'll take care of it. And if you have any news for us, please don't hesitate to email news NHJ at insidesources.com. He's Drew Klein with the Josiah Bartlett Center. I'm Michael Graham at the New Hampshire Journal. Thanks so much for listening to the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Mm -hmm.